Have you ever heard the sounds of the sea? Of whales and dolphins, snapping shrimp, boat noise and military sonar? Welcome to Unsonorous Seas. My name is Barry Killin, and I'm an artist from the Isle of Iona. Join me as I encounter vastness, complexity and wonder in the sounds of the seas that surround the chain of Scottish islands known as the Hebrides. This story begins with a stranded whale and takes us deep into another world of human and non-human sounds. Come listen to the sea and what it can reveal to us. Follow the story online at unsonorousseas.com. Welcome to the second episode of Unsonorous Seas. This is a series of six podcasts, and in the first episode, I tell the story of a whale which came ashore on the Isle of Iona. If you want to know more about the whole story of the project, listen to episode one first. Welcome to this conversation with musician and composer Fergus Hall, who created the sound work for Unsonorous Seas. Fergus lives in Glasgow, he's based in Glasgow, but actually we found out very early on in our conversations that we were both born and brought up in Greenock, that's right, isn't yes. it, Fergus? Yes, we spoke quite a lot about watching MOD things on the Clyde submarines and, and submarines and how the sugar boat looks mm, like a whale. That's right. I that's always right. thought the sugar boat looks like a whale. It was a good yeah. kicking off point. Pretty, pretty easy in that sense. A good icebreaker. So for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit more about your music practice? Yeah, so I'm a composer and musician, born in Greenock and now based in Glasgow. You had it pretty much covered. I do a lot of writing and a lot of work kind of within a sort of classical spectrum, but I guess then thinking a lot about folk music and thinking a lot about improvised music and jazz music. And my work in the last couple of years has kind of very much gone down that route a little bit more working with jazz musicians or incorporating sort of elements of improvisation, some working with community groups within that as well. But then also a bit more sound design work, which is kind of uh, this project sort of encompasses. Um, so I have kind of do lots of things here, there and everywhere, sort of as musicians tend to do these days. Because we were trying to remember the route towards your work like what was the route for me towards your work we I did, were talking, I've asked you a few times like yeah, why did you approach I, me <laughs> well it's it's kind of buried in the the pre pre-covid the February February 2020 I attended an event that Creative Carbon Scotland were running and it was about anthropogenic sound and I went at the end of the at the end of the event I went to speak to one of the speakers who happened to be a tutor of yours from the conservatoire, Stuart. Stuart McRae, big Stuart shout McRae. out to Stuart McRae for this gig, basically. Yeah, <laughs> so basically, um, it's big thanks to Stuart. Yeah, big yeah. shout out to you, Stuart. So I just happened to say to Stuart that I'm doing this project and uh, looking at the impact of anthropogenic sound on cetacean marine life and the ecology of the seas around the Hebrides, particularly in relationship to the stranding event in 2018. And... Stuart recommended that I go and listen to your work. I think also at that point I'd written so much music about the sea. Mm. And this is something I was talking to somebody else about the other day of, um, I'm aware of how much of my music is about the sea. Like I, I, it's something that I've not like failed to notice, 
kind of just because it's popped up. I guess also once you do a few well, people then maybe approach you to do other things about it, which is mm. part, partly what's happened here. But then I guess like we did both grow up in quite a coastal place. It's quite a funny coastal place and it's not necessarily the open ocean, but it's very much like the sea. Like it's very seaweed and seals and seagulls, you know, it's very, very much there. And that idea of a whole town kind of being present there because of its because of its location, like shipbuilding, port, all this kind of thing. It's such an interesting relationship and you know, and you're obviously now living on living on an island. Yeah, it's a funny one that of I just seem to write loads of music about the sea which is maybe why you found me. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think just the variety um, of of work that you've just touched upon, um, the variety of composition work that you've done and, and projects you were involved with, I found really, I was really curious about that um, and, and felt that you would be the right person to respond to this collection of sounds that I was going to gather while I was at sea with the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust during... Joint Warrior, which is the biggest tactically focused military exercise in Europe. The Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust do a research trip around the Joint Warrior exercise to monitor the impact of the exercise on cetaceans. And that was really the brief that I came to you with, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a bit about how you first felt when you heard some of the recordings that you were going to be working with? Yeah, I was I was pretty excited to get hold of those recordings because by that point we'd spoken quite a lot about what this project was going to be and what it was. And I guess for me, musically, I'd never made anything like this. I'd made work, you know, I had work that was kind of floating about this sort of era, you know, which is, I guess, why you got me on board. But um, you have that strange thing as a composer of trying to imagine a piece that doesn't exist yet. So I guess when you then hear those initial kind of... Uh, the raw material, I guess. That's when that journey really starts. <laughs> and I, I don't remember if, um, you might not remember this, but I remember you being kind of worried about how noisy they were. Because I don't know if you thought they were going to be like really pristine, like, you know, whale calls from the ether. And it was not, it's just like white noise, basically. And I'm used to that, like with the, with the, uh, I can't remember how that conversation went, but I think I sort of said, that's fine. Like, this is what I signed up for. And you'd be like this. Um, so I think for me, the fact they're so noisy and so much information in them. Yeah, I think I was just excited to play with them. I think um, the process was quite playful at first in that it had to be. You know, you're just putting these sounds through processors, stretching them, like pulling them around. It's a wee bit clay-like, I think. And I think such full recordings that have a lot of detail in them that you do need to kind of wade through and almost like pick your way through are good for that. It's just hours of fun uh, going through these hydrophone recordings. I think I was really struck by then when you did get quite clear, sorry, or the clearest moments of cetacean noise were still pretty off in the ether, like mm. real distant calls, which again, rather than be like, oh, that's a shame, they're so distant. You're like, well, that's the piece, isn't it? You know, that's like the nature of it. I think for me, a big theme of this was that separation 
and how that we can't really share that space either physically or sonically because they're, you know, obviously a total different species and it's a total different world. But particularly then how you experience that through sound of it would be very different if you could hear underwater like a dolphin does. Instead, we need to use these quite clunky bits of technology. So the presence of a hydrophone is a big thing in this piece almost, even if it's not like that explicit. But most of this sound is through that hydrophone on that boat, you know. Yeah, I think sonar was a really funny one in that it didn't sound what I thought it would sound like. I think in popular media, it's a bit more ominous and a bit like, it's definitely lower pitched in popular media and what sonar is when it's actually very, very high pitched, very piercing and very, very loud, which, which I didn't know. That was like genuinely like, oh, wow, that's, that's quite an amazing thing that I didn't know and you have that effect when something's that high and you get this a lot with dolphins actually as well when something is so high pitched when you then shift it all down you then discover there's a lot of information even higher up Mm -hmm. that you just was like well beyond like what you could hear as a human whereas when you shift it all down suddenly there's all this extra stuff so I found that a lot with sonar that was that was you know quite a it's quite a complicated sound. You mentioned the hydrophone there and when I was in the boat I mean, it really is quite a clunky bit of equipment and you're reeling it in every night, like over 100 metres of, of length of, of cable. But it's like a... It, it acts like a technical shaman <laughs> in that it connects us to the, the animals, it connects us to the mammals below the surface that we, we can't see, but we can hear them. And I remember feeling that there was a distance, even on the boat, there was a distance between seeing the cetaceans and, and, and hearing them through the hydrophone and through the speakers in the, in the cabin. And I just wondered, I mean, there was such a breadth of material for you to work through. Did it feel a little bit overwhelming at any point or did you feel, because COVID also gave us quite a bit of extra time as well, which was probably helpful in terms of just thinking through the piece and then thinking about how to structure when you had this, not just the bare mm. noises, but then as you're describing all the frequencies and ranges mm. within each sound, you had a massive palette in front of you. Yeah, definitely. I think with that sort of sound designing work, there's a little bit of an element of you could just make things forever. Like you could just keep on going because there was so much material that like you could, like I could make an entire new piece like that doesn't sound like the one I've made like I could just have kept going or it could have been twice as long you know I just had to you know set limits as you do and then there's a point where you're putting all these sounds through the different processors and you're getting all these results and you could just keep keep doing that whereas you go like well I really like the sounds I now have so I should probably start structuring them into some sound design at this point whereas you could just keep going so I guess it was overwhelming but I think I'm quite good when I'm making music of when I find an idea that I like and I run with it, I, I think there was always enough material that if I needed, like I didn't know what a thing was going to be, you just keep on playing. You just keep on playing, keep on stretching, keep on putting them through delays and reverby things and eventually something goes. So there's a few moments where I had to then go back and just do a bit more playing to find something. Whereas there's then moments where like, okay, I think from these sounds of water and these dolphin clicks, I've got like what I think could be a whole section of this. So I'm just going to like leave these sounds now and make that. And then now and again, I'd go back and grab little things. So I think if you try to go through every single sound that we recorded and and work with it really intimately, 
yeah, you just have enough music for uh, enough material for it to make hours and hours of stuff, which you could do. You know, so it's why it's really great. I love that kind of field recording work. Protect the hydrophone. Something really interesting. Mm-hmm. The hydrophone is uh, it, it was a two-channel recording thing. You know, two channels being that we're on two channels and you could pan them like side and side and stuff. Um, and there was always one side of the hydrophone was like way busier than the other. And for ages, I couldn't figure it out, figure it out. And it's to do with the current. It's because the current of the water of is hitting one side of the hydrophone of more, uh-huh. which is, yeah, really funny. And then you could play with that as well as, as a thing. But yeah, suddenly imagining this little, this little like, it's almost like a little periscope, but sound, isn't it? It's like kind of looking, or I feel like it's like really um, early photography or something where you're just getting sort of shapes of things, mm. you know, um, it was good fun. But then things like Sonar were very, very clear. Because they're so loud, you know. And so different from the and other, so different. from yeah, the natural totally. sounds. Totally. Or boat noise as well was mm. another one. It's like, it's just right there. I think it's because it was maybe quite a lot of boat noise from the actual vessel that the hydrophone was being dangled from. But it's pretty distinct, yeah. Certainly, um, I did some training with the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust before the trip to help me identify different sounds just to tune my ear and we were at sea for 10 11 days and it it probably did take at least three days till I was actually confident about discerning between the boat noise the Salurian boat noise the noise that was a boat that was you know a few Mm. miles away and the difference between water noise and snapping shrimp and uh you know so much snapping shrimp lots and lots of snapping shrimp and uh it was it really was um training my ear really really training my ear to listen um and I think that I, I felt really excited when you came back even with just the first initial recordings where you've been playing with a few of the sounds that were really like a building block for the the fuller piece eventually and also the conversations that we had backwards and forwards during that time as well and being able to come and eventually once restrictions eased, being able to come and sit with you and listen to the the progress you'd made and, and, and listen to you talking about the development of the sounds and that really intimate relationship that you have when you're creating something. Um, and it was so lovely for me to, to sit and hear you talk about it and unravel your thinking and and reveal your thinking around the sounds and uh, see the excitement um, as as well that you were experiencing, knowing that you were really beginning to pull the structure together, I think. Totally. I mean, uh, going back to the playfulness of it, of like, I guess there's quite a few ideas from the very early R&D that was using some recordings that weren't actually taken on that research trip. But then those processes were really influential in the piece. But with something that size um, of, of a piece, you know, you can't have an idea. Certainly I can't. Some people maybe do, but I can't have an idea of what the whole thing's going to sound like or what it's going to be structurally. So you do just need to play until the blocks emerge. But then so much of our um, conversations then influence things of like, oh, actually, I think this now really needs, you know, coming away from like a day where we spoke about things and I showed you things and uh, and just getting your insight into kind of, or your reaction to it rather, of okay now I actually need a section that does this and I need to break this flow because for me music's all about trajectory and all about line I guess of overall arc when thinking of something that length you know it's all about your ups and downs um, and trying to get that right and so much of our conversations around which I'm sure we'll probably get into a wee bit now but 
yeah, just the scope of it. I think it's just trying to, you're trying to sort of score a sort of thought process of this whole thing, which is, which is not easy, I guess. It's quite abstract in that way. Yeah, very much so. And it's two very cryptic environments, you know, the environment of the whale, the environment of the military. So very little is actually known about either. Mm. And I think for me, the, the sound work and the conversations that we were having, part of what we wanted it to do was, was pull the listener into that complexity and mm. pull them into those two cryptic environments yeah. and accentuate the the distance of human to non-human, but also the connection of human to non-human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Because um, kind of going back to the hydrophone thing of like being really interested in this sort of little periscopy like glimpse that we've got that kind of demonstrates that big void of that that big separation. I really want to explore that, and that I'm really interested in kind of recording and field recordings as that anyway of that idea of like a recording not really being the thing that it's recorded you know it sounds like the recording of an elephant but it's sorry it sounds like an elephant but it's not it's a recording of an elephant it's like quite an interesting thing especially when it's either old recordings that I'm really fascinated by or I guess like things like field recordings of of something of, of like that of this environment that is so imagined for us even though you can you with with um technology and research you, know, you could d- dive there you could take a submersive vehicle there or whatever or photography or sounds or whatever but it's still you need those big bulky things to do it you can't really exist in that so not trying to pretend as though I know what that environment is like because obviously this you know if anyone listens to this piece is obviously not trying to recreate those environments so it ends up being quite an imagined sort of environment that is for me just a sonic space that I'd like a listener to just sort of sit in and and enjoy the sounds, basically, you know, either the kind of processing and manipulation that I've done to it or the pretty straight up, like, hear what the sounds are, because I tried to pull that around a lot. So the, the actual just sounds as they are are also in there, also in an installation as well. Similarly, so it can just be a sonic space that they sort of um, inhabit to, I guess, think about that idea of a separation while also having these like slight connections in there. Mm. Little things like... Um, the idea that there's a voice in this piece and the whole piece, almost the whole piece is made from these hydrophone recordings, except one or two very little things that are quite human presences. There's myself playing with some dried baleen Mm. in the opening. This is after a conversation, because I'd forgotten I'd even made that recording on that trip with you. We had a conversation about artefacts and beachcombing and that kind of sacredness of these artefacts, particularly whale bones and, and things. And I forgot I had this recording of the, our friend John found on the beach of this lovely dried baleen. So suddenly I was like, well, that's the way to open the piece, isn't it? You know, that's that's me like playing with this thing or not playing with it, but like feeling it and 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 that feeling, that texture.
So that's almost like a little bit of a human presence on it of that connection between us and whales of of just the physicality of that when they wash up on the beach. And that could be anything from whalebone tools being discovered in an archaeological dig to actually the point in history where whale product was almost a bit like plastic as now. It's actually it was actually impossible to get away from, to not use it, because it was just using everything, to then back again almost to then finding these things on a beach, either through the natural process of a whale dying and washing up or the unnatural process of a whale dying and washing up or beaching the other human presence then being this voice so leah shaw sings on this and we both wanted to maybe have another musician on this just i felt it would glue it all together just a little bit of having these hydrophone recordings really up in center but just having this other presence in it that wasn't that upfront because singing can quite often draw the ear and suddenly it's a vocal solo, whereas I didn't want to do that with Leah, even though she's amazing and could totally do that really well. But for me, it was about the idea of singing and breath and breath being this very, uh, very on the nose reference to whales, but being this like strange little biological link, despite this void of them living in the ocean, which seems a bit crazy when you think about it, you know, of, of that idea of a marine mammal, you know, they live in the ocean almost, you know, pretty exclusively. But breathe air, you know. So that voice is sort of a little bit of a symbol of that for me, I think. And Leah's voice comes in at the the end of the piece, and the the final section of the piece is called Whale Fall. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it was very natural that there would be a voice in that piece somehow, and that it would be a female voice. Sure. And I just wondered if you can you can talk a bit about what Whale Fall is and how that gave you the feeling of having Leah's voice in it, of having a female voice for that closing part of the composition? Sure. Because the thing with her not being that up front and centre through most of the piece, so she pops up all over it, but quite often not that obviously. Like there's some movements that you might not actually notice she's there or I've processed her voice so intensely. Basically just used her voice as the same way that I used the hydrophone recordings, which I'm really proud of. But right at the end, it's like quite clearly then just this singer. That's the one moment and it is right at the end. And I think it was less specifically a female voice, more just, well, I guess maybe a female voice in the way that we spoke a bit about Keening mm-hmm. and whatnot. And I didn't want to, to, to I didn't want to try and replicate that that practice and that idea, you know, because it's a very it's a very powerful thing, quite a sacred thing. And, you know, I wasn't trying to to um, evoke that directly but that idea of just the kind of raw power of the voice and sort of almost sort of semi-improvised nature of it as well like some really beautiful resources that we shared with each other of some amazing accounts of of um, some amazing recordings of of that particularly from Ireland as well mm-hmm. and because a lot of this stuff for Leah is, is, was kind of improvised I was just kind of plugging her into what I'd made and sort of giving suggestions but she she's an amazing improviser herself so she was very much just responding to the idea that I'd given her. And whale fall, I guess, is this, well, it's this idea of when a whale dies out at sea, it floats around for a little bit because of all the the gases in a decomposing body, but they eventually dissipate and uh, it then sinks. And if it's quite far out to sea, it will obviously sink very, very deeply. And then when it reaches the bottom, obviously rests, event, uh, rests on the ocean floor. And that part of the ocean is that deep down that's very devoid of sunlight doesn't have a lot of growth or vegetation and it kind of looks a bit barren and lifeless but then it obviously just means that life is actually either quite microscopic or very specialized and very kind of weird and and it's nourished by just this falling debris of um 
from the from the surface that's very fine. It's kind of referred to as ocean snow. It's kind of like leaves, dead leaves on a rainforest, just kind of de- decomposing and just becoming almost the compost and just you know nutrients recycled and all this. But when a whale falls, it's it's like a huge dump of nutrients that that is quite massive to the point where there's species of animal down there, like little worms and bacteria that only live on dead whales. And they just, their larvae just floats around until it finds a dead whale, um, which is quite amazing. Like it's like, it's quite crazy evolution at that point. And the idea that a whale can nourish this oasis of life for up to 60 or 70 years, which is nuts when you then think about the idea that some whales live about that long. So you're like doubling the amount, you know, it's almost the amount of time that that body is present on the earth is quite huge. But, um, yeah, I guess it's almost a slight religiosity and a slight mourning and a slight reverence of that moment. And obviously we're dealing with something like that maybe happening happening unnaturally, either them then beaching or being washed up. But I'm just thinking of the idea of something sinking and not trying to comment too much on like, you know, there's obviously a hypothetical whale in a situation that is sinking. But I don't know, just something about that image of just this huge animal just sinking, sinking, sinking. And it's quite offering-like, I think. Very poetic. It's very visual poetic. Image. Something very offering, something very beautiful about just that recycling of nutrients. Yeah, because organs and um, as in like pipe organs and church organs and accordions are a little bit of a musical motif in the piece. And they're all synthesized from dolphin sounds. But the reason for it being like organs and stuff or me running with, when they started to sound like organs, I was like, oh, this could work really well. Because again, thinking a little bit about that requiem idea an idea of reverence or religiosity, but then also as instruments that use air, you know, and even though they're, they're fake organs that I made, you know, they're not real organs. So again, they're then imagined. Mm. Like they're then sort of, the, mm. these organs don't exist in the way that, in the way that these spaces don't exist. But I don't know, there was just like all this bound up in it. and those accidental things emerge or they're not accidental you know and, and it, it's that it's like it's like a, a, a an affirmation that you're definitely you're working in the right direction when those things reveal themselves so mm. the the dolphins sounding yeah. a little bit like organs and then the the organs and accordions um that that being about um breath and mm. in and out the exhalation and yeah. um i think it's it's just a lovely insight into how your mind was working at the time that you were making those those connections that, that, that almost like um, the music becomes an audible version of, of your thinking, obviously, but an audible version of all those um, uh, coincidences that emerge and those thoughts and things that you were noticing in your own thinking. 
And also loads of things that we that came up basically between the two of us, you know, totally. Like I was put onto the Keening idea of, by you. You were like, this is an interesting thing we should look at. You know, that was that was that was definitely from you. I remember that because you sent me some really, you know, I remember having a morning. Mm. I think it was a morning, you know, when you don't sleep very well and you just get up horrendously early, like so early. And I was like, well, I could lie here and just like stare at the ceiling or I might just like go on my laptop and maybe just look at some of the stuff Ari sent me. And I like had a great morning <laughs> at like four in the morning or something, like drinking coffee and just listening to this Irish woman just pouring out her soul. Like it was, it was, it was incredible. And then obviously all this stuff with Leah, you know, which doesn't sound like that Irish lady at all, but it was more just this thinking of like, I want to just pop Leah in front of a mic and we're just going to layer, we're just going to go up and the music's going to move up and up and she's going to open up her voice as it goes and thinking about this idea of something sinking, sinking, sinking deeper and rather than getting further away, it's more the space is expanding. It starts off with a, with a little kind of accordion, I guess, and then it moves to something that's a bit more like a church organ to eventually some kind of pipe or I'm, I was just thinking of expanding a space mm. kind of as something was to be sinking down just into this darkness and Leah sort of follows it in terms of her voice and there's multiple Leahs at this point there's like she's very layered up stuff as well comes after you've made it like I think I'm a I, I definitely am not one to be like oh yes I thought that the whole time but I definitely maybe subconsciously was thinking about some things that end up in the piece and on reflection quite af- often after you've finished it mm-hmm. you're then like oh yeah I guess that totally is like that um I think the breathiness of the of the voice and stuff I think I think it was just something I was drawn to I don't think I was overthinking thinking that much about the whale and voice thing it's just then after you're, you make that connection you know, definitely. You know, I'm very open about that of like mm. with music, certainly my own process anyway. So on that note, Fergus, we've talked a little bit about Whale Fall and the end of it, but would you like to talk us through the piece? Absolutely. The whole thing, I'll mention the whole thing sort of runs as one massive piece. The The idea is I wanted it to kind of look browned, partly because it's being used in an installation. I didn't want it be, to be all that clear where it starts and ends. So if you walked in at any point, you're just in it. But there is quite defined sections. Partly because I had to work on them in sections anyway, otherwise that would be too overwhelming. Um, but the first section is called Baleen Orca and Boat Noise. And I've been quite literal with these track titles because that's pretty much what this is made out of. So it's the Baleen that I would have already spoken about. And that sort of drives it and opens opens it up and kind of brings us into that world a little bit. Um, and then it gets a little bit more driving and... All of that sort of rhythmic stuff, even the low stuff that sounds like some big drum kit in a room or something, that's all baleen, which is which is good fun. And the orca that are in there. They're not all that obvious. They're kind of sprinkled in little snippets of the of the recording. And this is this amazing... Do you want to mention this? Because it's a great like, moment when you're on that research vessel with the orca. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I found out recently that those recordings are the first recordings of orca that the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust have ever no managed way. to get. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's so, cool. So they're very special. And uh, oh, it was an incredible oh, right. moment 
um, just off Loch Boysdale early in the morning. We just set off from from our anchorage, and um, the first mate just saw the light hitting off the dorsal. And uh, we knew there had been reports so that John Co and Aquarius, who were the two mm. old bachelors left in the, the West Coast community of Orca, had been sighted round about Skye and Lewis and Harris. So we were hopeful, but it's very unusual to get to see them. But we were really, really fortunate. And then we were even more fortunate to actually catch a snippet there of their voices oh, amazing yeah because yeah, they're they are quite distant and they're quiet and you've got to really search for them and i find going through the material you're searching for these little things like art you know long long clips of just water and snapping mm. shrimp and you're like was that a thing and you have to go back and like listen again and all this this little these little calls Because we actually sat, it was a kind of rainy yeah. afternoon like it is at the moment. Yeah, and it's we quite were, rainy. You may be able to hear um, yeah. the rain, or maybe you don't. I'm not really sure, but um, it and we a, sat and we be a Scottish arts project without <laughs> lots of rain. <laughs> yeah, and we were really straining to hear, and you were saying, "No, they're definitely there. They're definitely there." Yeah, you'll get this with dolphins. The stuff that's really high pitched. I was saying is you get a glimpse of it, and you're like, "Was that, or am I just making that up?" And then you put it on a spectrograph where it analyzes visually the sound and you'll get a little blip of sound really high in the frequency range. So yeah, you're like, yeah, we almost missed it because it's barely in a range of hearing. Um, but yeah, so the Orca are really funny because I tried to maybe, at one point I definitely tried to tidy them up and clean them up and just couldn't. And I was like, well, this is what they sound like then. But you do then get this kind of radio staticky kind of like quality to it in that you can't really hear, they're actually sprinkled throughout that movement, but you can't really hear them often. I know they're there and you might, they definitely add to the texture. So only when right at the end of that section, actually a lot of the texture drops out and they're sort of there more obviously um, as these little calls. That's a fun one. And then the boat noise part of it being most of that movement is then from these boat noises because artificial things like boats have quite a strong frequency of like or something. So from that, you can then pick that pitch out and then you can sample it and move it around and, and get like your, your material from that. And there's a lot of that, that swooshy because a lot of the note, you'll get the frequency of the boat, but you'll get all the boat noise around it that's then sweeping up and down and creating this like really intense sort of very textured sort of thing as well as in your organ that's in there that's kind of your first moment of like organ and nice and strong so yeah and then after that we have dolphin clicks and whistles which is pretty again self-explanatory those recordings are great they're mm. really clear and i don't know if the dolphins just get way closer to the boats i think they do think and yeah when we left tobermory the first day of the trip um i could actually hear that we had we had a, a pod of common um dolphins mm. alongside the boat immediately and i could hear them without the the hydrophone or the speakers that we hadn't oh. even put the hydrophone out you could you could just hear them from the deck which was a new experience for me as well it was incredible did you ever um hear you might have read we might have read the same thing like so the thing i read that where i found this out you might have also read 
um, but old boats, old ships, like in you know Napoleonic Wars type yes. thing, because of the shape of them, that they would they just they just reverberate whale noise. So the first I ever heard whale noise was would have just been on boats, and it's where you get a lot of these stories of either siren calls sea monsters like all this kind of thing because they're getting this sound of what could be anything like you know it could be some dolphins or some orca or i'm assuming a passing humpback whale or something you know which is pretty crazy and then that was lost when it's suddenly all metal i don't know like how that works necessarily but um, and i think yeah also lost as the as the seas got busier and got noisier and the boats got noisier of course that no that that is it um that's totally it as the boats Mm. got noisier i think that came from fathoms the rebecca giggs book that we both read and i and i find that just such a an incredible source of information but written in in a really poetic and accessible way um really enjoyable book to read and uh i yeah that's right the the, the, the wooden boats acted as amplifiers mm. yeah, and then that's that it. Yeah, created yeah, the amazing. whole mythology of sea yeah. sirens and sea monsters that yeah. these these sounds there was an, a, an imaginary woman or an or, or an <laughs> imaginary creature at, at the other yeah, end it of would it would be so ominous imagine mm. like it in your hammock at night or something mm. that would be so ominous the Clicks and Whistles was the second part. Is yeah, the second, second part. part. Of the... So it's really just playing around with that. It's actually, it was quite a simple one. It's that some water sounds. So what happens when you take an, a resonant frequency of some water? So we just have recording some water that's got a snapping shrimp in it. Mm-hmm. Like a resonant frequency of that, and then you pitch shift that around. So again, you're getting the frequency plus the texture of the water that's then got little blips and blops because of the snapping shrimp. So the actual note goes, there are little accents basically the note. And if you then do this at different rates, because when you pitch shift a sound, you're often changing the the timing of it. You're maybe making mm. it longer to make mm. it lower. So then you get this like cool little rhythm thing. So it's like lots of water noise and then the dolphin clicks. And then Leah pops up in this one for the first time. And again, it's very abstracted. But um, it's funnily enough, it's actually the material she sings in Whalefall at the end, all chopped up and all like manipulated all over the place. Um, and I was going to record her again, but I actually worked that that material worked fine, mm-hmm. and it, it's this nice little subtle connection between those two those two sections, kind of opposite ends of the piece. A bit of vocoding. So when you vocode something, you, Daft Punk use vocoders all the time. So you'll have a synth that you play, but you speak into a microphone, and the microphone takes the rhythm of your speech, but combines it with the pitch of whatever you're playing on the synth. Whereas what I did is I took the the layered up vocals of Leah and treated that as the synth, whereas the the thing that was going through the microphone, which wasn't going through a microphone, the thing that was going fed into the vocoder were dolphin clicks. Mm-hmm. So you get this really weird um, kind of dolphin Leah hybrid, um, which sounds really cool. It's basically taking the really intense rhythms of the dolphin and then uh, with the pitch of Leah. So it's cool. That was one of my favourite bits. Definitely one of my favourite movements, actually, is that second mm. one. Yeah. And then we have sonar one. So there's two kind of main sonar sections in, 
in this. So it's the first one. So it's a little bit of a just sort of it's there. It's kind of happening. Kind of introducing some of the sonar ideas that come back sort of in full later. But this was one, yeah, you get this thing, you know, like I said before, when you pitch shift sonar down, you get then all these upper frequencies that you couldn't hear before. But because I guess of the nature of how the sound's made, it has very rich overtones. So it's like a chord, basically. Like every blip of sonar that when it's at a normal frequency just sounds like a little beep, like a little ping. Whereas actually when you bring it down, it's suddenly like a chord. You know, it's like so many notes within that sound. I didn't really need to do that much to except I just lowered it, slowed it down massively and lowered it. Sometimes like lowering it by about three octaves and stuff, three or four octaves, it's so high or you can do so much with it, like a lot of the bassy stuff is, is also an iron that movement. Plus some of the little artifacts that you get as well, they're kind of the percussive stuff. This one gets a wee bit more percussive and I sort of generated a sort of little electronic percussion instrument that's all just the sonar sounds chopped up really finely and and they kind of using arpeggiators that sort of go very fast mm -hmm. that a lot of that is the sort of more crossive thing and Leah again is in that very subtly in that she is a lot of the sort of more guttural sort of mouth sounds that she was making again this weird sort of then not human sounding presence even though it is humans I guess in terms of sonar but it's like a wee bit more unnatural feeling and that you maybe wouldn't necessarily be able to separate the sonar percussion sounds from the Leah percussion sounds, mm -hmm. you know, which is, I guess, quite obvious. There was enough material within the sonar sounds for you to do a second piece. Yeah, 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 totally. So later on in the piece, you then have sonar two, which again is just an, a, a, an extension of that. And then in the Rebecca Giggs book in Fathoms, she makes a great comparison between sound in the ocean and deforestation, mm. which will really influence the thinking behind this. I think it's because we're looking at sound with regards to the stranding event that was a bit more like immediate. It was a bit more sonar really badly affected these whales and caused them to become sick and caused them to die, which is very immediate. But this idea of the long-term effects of sound, of how sonar, boat noise, shipping lines, oil rig exploration, just create these pockets of sound in the ocean. But particularly if you think about shipping lanes, are just big, big cuts across the ocean, basically. And if you're then an animal that experiences your whole world through sound, suddenly there's these impenetrable barriers to the point where you've got breeding populations that can't find each other or or populations that can't locate their food and um, really affecting migration routes which then affects the rate of the breeding you know it's a huge thing and it's almost that idea of if you had were on land and it was a forest and you were cutting down the forest you're separating then parts of the forest so some species or pockets of populations of species become isolated and it, and it's really similar and it was it was amazing that that analogy and that, so with this I just basically poured the sonar through really intense processing that kind of just stretches and, and distorts it and pulls like every little artifact out of it so this thing is really noisy but mm -hmm. like everything comes from sonar in this piece like there's nothing Leah's actually not in this one there are no whales in it is all sonar just because it almost felt like it takes I wanted it to take over 
for a second and become quite overwhelming. All of this is from, from a, a couple of those little blips. It's a really powerful part of the composition and I think that we always knew we had to go into the darker aspect of yeah. of the of the event that we were exploring, that we had to bring that darkness and that complexity and also the industrial nature of what yeah. lies underneath the apparent absolute beauty of, of our seas that we are completely unaware of. And that's the thing Rebecca Giggs brings up is deforestation wheat. That's a very clear thing. Obviously, to the extent a lot of us who don't live in those parts of the world maybe aren't aware to the extent that deforestation takes place, but it's something that's very present, whereas because this happens under the surface of the water, you're not really aware of how how much of an impact that has. No, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, one of the scientists that I spoke to that was involved in the necropsy of some of the whales that came ashore in that 2018 stranding event, he described the bottom of the, the sea as being an industrial landscape because there is so much human intervention. So that's an industrial seascape that animals that depend on echolocation, you know, as you said, to find their, their breeding partners, to find their social groups, to find their food. They depend on echolocation for absolutely everything. And I think that, again, is that the, the cryptic nature of the environments. And there had to be part of the composition that spoke to that. And I think the Sonar 2 piece really, really does that. Amazing fact, and we're just spouting whale facts at this point, but who, who doesn't love a whale fact? And citing quite heavily Rebecca Giggs, like mm. 100%, but um, about because of all this, whales kind of have been, have over the last, as long as we've been able to monitor them, they've become quieter and they've become higher in pitch, so particularly like blue whales. So a very low frequency travels the furthest because the wave is so big, mm. whereas those waves have gotten smaller and that this pitch is raised and that's therefore in a sense quieter as well because they don't, communicate as far anymore because they can't so they can only really communicate to other whales closer whereas they used to have these like expansive calls particularly i'm thinking particularly blue whales and large whales that you know they they could have these very low not even necessarily loud but low calls so they, they travel very far because they can't anymore yeah and if you equate that to sight um, yeah, yeah, then yeah, totally. actually they're they're seeing less and less of their own world because we're seeing more and more of it yeah so there's Sonar 1 and then there's this other movement and then Sonar 2. So actually mm -hmm. in between there's this, again, it's, this is actually some of the first the music that I wrote for this project in terms of the, the, the notes, like the harmony of this process was again thinking of this little dolphin organ. It sounds like a little chamber organ or mm -hmm. a little harmonium rather than like a big pipe organ. But there's a real lovely presence in it of this lovely little minky whale, which does actually pop up in the first movement as well. It's a wee bit less obvious and I'll get to that in a second. But um, 
The manky whale is really lovely because they have such a lovely call. It's this very low thump that just kind of speeds up and slows down and it's very meditative in a way. It's almost like somebody hitting a drum. It's very beautiful and it kind of just forms the sort of momentum of this little this mm. little piece. with the dolphin clicks is you do have these organs and these frequencies that we've I've made but I do a lot of gating in this piece did you say gating or gating yeah like a gate like a garden gate okay so, so, so explain that because when you've got a sound like say an organ and I put a gate on it so I tell it I only want you to sound when this other sound happens and in some cases that other sound you could actually make it not audible it's just when it happens, but we can't hear it because I've muted it. And I use loads of dolphin clicks for that. So I stretch out the dolphin click. So instead of a really intense burst of, you know, buzzing, it becomes do, 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 do. It becomes the sound. But then I mute that and then gate it with the, with the organ. So in this movement, you get all these little blips. These, it's as though somebody's on an organ and it's just like hitting mm-hmm. bits of it. Mm-hmm. And the rhythm is quite erratic and it's all from dolphin clicks. So it's a little bit, again, not trying to be too on the nose, but it's a little bit the idea of something you're not seeing. is is You're hearing a thing you're not seeing. Um, and the minky whale does that in the first movement. You get this pulsing, bah, 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 this really intense thing, this rhythm that basically comes from a minky whale that you can't actually hear at that moment. You're hearing its effect on these sounds. little bit of chat there but it was I had a lot of fun with gates <laughs> audio gates which is like um audio production 101 but I find this really fun way to be quite creative with it but you get all these like as though somebody's on an organ just hitting bits of it and it's quite erratic and I thought it worked really well because it's all dolphins mm-hmm. you know I didn't chop it up and decide what the rhythm was going to be mm-hmm. it was just like this is what the rhythm is and this is where it came from so that was a lot of fun and then after that you'd have your second sonar piece and then following that you have whale fall which we've already spoken quite a lot about, but I wanted something after all this craziness of particularly after that that final sonar moment. It's very minimal in that it just goes round and round. It's just the chords. I wanted something that was almost reverent in the way that it was just almost, I guess, a little bit ritual-like in that it's just going round and round and, and being quite committed to that the minimalism of that, of just... Yeah, just the repetitiveness, the gentleness of the gentleness of repetition in that way. And Leah just starts to kind of float in and do her thing. We're sitting here in your sitting room and you know you've got piano and a couple of other instruments around and I just wondered you know, you mentioned the nerdy aspects there and explained <laughs> the gates and how how you that worked in, in the piece, but how different is this way of composing to what people conventionally think composers do and sit with a melody and, you know, how 
how where are the similarities or, or and where are the differences or, or or are there differences sure i mean you'd yeah you'd obviously get a very different answer if you asked a different composer obviously but that's you know that's obviously a given you know that's kind of how it all works I really enjoy it in that it's actually something I've only really explored. Electronic music like this, or sound design, or electroacoustic, or whatever you're calling it. Um, it's something I've only really explored majorly since 2018 in my own work. Um, just because of how it happened in my studies and stuff, and just kind of the music I was interested in while I was studying. Um, and then for me, lockdown and pandemic, and having not much else to do, meant that I explored this a lot more, and, and you know, really kind of... in really develop my skills in it a little bit more and stuff but um for me I enjoy it a lot I almost said more I love writing scores and writing notes on a page and working with musicians I also really love sound designing like this for me they're just so such different processes I I play all the organ stuff but I don't really think about what the notes are it's very improvised Mm. in the way that I'll improvise and jam and then take the bits I like so if I need to at some point I need to play some of this stuff live I'm literally going to need to transcribe it and go back and figure out what it was I played because I don't really remember Um, and I really like that I like being away from the notes for a little bit but project to project I enjoy doing that kind of thing anyway like there'll be a project where I do need to write some notes that I'll really enjoy because I'm away from my computer um, and the sound design part of it for me I think I'm thinking a lot about loads of things I've already spoken about but space I think like the actual audio space that you're that you're inhabiting when you put a pair of headphones on or when you walk into an installation of where things are are they far away are they close by I really love creating that space a lot like which is an audio production Mm. thing I absolutely love that and I guess there's really weird textures and stuff I don't know I'm not very good at talking about this I've not had to talk about this very much and it's actually the first one of the first times I'm talking in depth about this piece, actually. And it's the first time I've done a piece mm-hmm. this big of sound design. So something I'm still getting used to. And how can people experience the final work? How is it going to be available to the public? So uh, you, this music will be used um, as part of this exhibition. There's lots of collaborative artists that if you want to hear more about those artists, you can listen to the other episodes of this podcast. And it will be opening in Tobermory at Antober on the 8th of July. We're aware that if you can't get to Tobermory, you might also want to experience this. So if you do, you can also just listen to the piece as an album because we're essentially going to release it as an album because it's about the length of an album. And there'll be links at various places such as www.onsonorseas.com where you can go to the band camp and you can maybe listen to it digitally or there'll be some kind of artifact-based things that you could purchase that will have a CD and whatnot. And we'll probably have it on some streaming things as well. And that will be released to coincide with the exhibition. So it will be around the 8th of July. I don't think we've totally confirmed when, but it's going to all pretty much land at the same time. However, by the time you hear this, there might be little snippets of it on Instagram and, and things. And there might be a little part of it released ahead of time, which will be on the Bandcamp. Yeah, as you can tell, I'm not amazing at plugging my work, but... I'm getting better. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Fergus. It's been really, really enjoyable talking to you about Unsonored Seas. It's a pleasure from the very start, from the first email, (laughs) the first Instagram (laughs) message. I don't think we're even on email at that point. Thank you. No worries. My pleasure.
On Sonorous Seas is a story told with the voices of science, art, music and poetry, and it explores the impact of military sonar and the ecology of the seas surrounding the Hebrides. The project is supported by the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, the Scottish Association for Marine Science, Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme and the National Museum of Scotland. On Sonorous Seas is funded through Antoper and Mull Theatre, Creative Scotland, the Space CIC, Culture, Heritage and Arts, Argyll and Isles, and AN Bursaries. The sounds in this podcast series have been used with kind permission of the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust and the Scottish Association for Marine Science. This podcast was co-produced by Barry Killen and Fergus Hall, edited by Fergus Hall, with sound compositions by Fergus Hall.